Welcome to Wild West Podcast, where fact and legend merge. The Wild West Podcast presents the true accounts of individuals who settled in a town built out of hunger for money, regulated by fast guns who walked on both sides of the law, patrolling, investing in, and regulating the brothels, saloons, and gambling houses. These are the stories of the men who made the history of the Old West come alive, bringing with them the birth of legends, brought to order by a six-gun and laid to rest with their boots on. Join us now as we take you back in history to the legends of the Wild West. The year is 1873. The buffalo hunters have moved their killing season 100 miles south of the Cimarron River onto the Staked Plains in the Texas Panhandle. Quanah Parker sat on his horse and quietly watched as the white hunter created a stand among the buffalo herd. The buffalo grazed in a two-mile wide prairie between the two men. The white man set a pair of cross stakes low in the ground, then lay down behind it. Quanah A tall, muscular, half-breed Indian watched the white man using stakes of wood to form a tripod guide for his rifle. Quanah Parker, the son of Cynthia Ann Parker, a white woman, had been captured by the Comanches as a child. The white hunter below him now took careful aim at a large bull. As the son of Chief Peta Nakona, he despised the white hunters who invaded his lands. His father taught him at the age of 15 to be a warrior. As a teenage orphan, the young Quana established his reputation as an aggressive and fearless fighter. He became a war chief at a relatively young age. Now he watched below as the white hunter took aim at a lead bull. Waiting, waiting. The bull finally turned sideways to offer a good shot, and then a puff of smoke appeared from the man's weapon. A good mile from the hunter, the bull simply fell to the ground on its side. A full second later, Quanah heard the boom of the man's Big 50 roll across the plain like low thunder. He stood for a moment in utter amazement, then whipped his horse to instant full speed back to the Quahati village and his warriors. Josiah Wright Moore remained on the ground and reloaded. Because the bull was their leader, the other buffalo in the herd simply stood around dazed while John Wright Moore brought the others down one by one. The Indians would later describe the Sharps rifle as shoots today and kills tomorrow. At one time, the buffalo were thought to be a boundless resource. Even the Indians doubted at first that these huge thundering animals could ever be vanquished. In 1867, the buffalo count in the Southern Plains estimated at nearly 50 million. But by 1869, tanneries all over the world discovered the wonders of buffalo leather. In the 1870s, everything changed. The war was over, and hundreds of veterans, many who lost everything to the battle between the states, moved westward in search of a renewal. The railroads had pushed into Kansas, but then stopped, dumping hundreds of unwaged men idle for work. The quick solution for many was to get a rifle and a horse and set out to kill buffalo. The Plains area became jammed with trading companies seeking to buy robes from the hundreds of buffalo hunters who had joined with Skinners and Teamsters to create a giant assembly line of death. For the most part, these men never considered that they were robbing the Indians of their livelihood. 
nor did they find any reason to fret about the natural restocking of this valuable resource. They had come to make their fortune with shot and powder. They killed for the hides and left the meat to rot in the sun. It was a depreciation that the Indians could never understand. For them, the buffalo was a walking storehouse. It provided everything from clothing to fuel for the campfire. It was after the big hunt of 1872 that the Arkansas buffalo herd laid in remnants. The bones and carcasses were scattered into the breaks of the Cimarron and the wilder country southwest. In the spring of 72, almost all the buffaloes crossing over the Arkansas River had been annihilated. The railroad admitted hauling 1,378,359 buffalo hides between the years of 1872 in 1874. General Nelson A. Miles said 4,373,730 buffaloes had fallen in the three years since the hunters moved down into the Arkansas River Valley. By 1873, the buffalo hunters had already invaded the Indian hunting grounds in southwestern Kansas. These enthusiastic buffalo hunts to the south of the Arkansas River occurred without interference from the Army. In the fall of that same year, Lieutenant Colonel Dodge, with a company of troops, rode over the central plains of Kansas. He had been told of the devastation caused the year before from the big hunt. Colonel Dodge wanted to see for himself the magnitude of carnage the buffalo hunter had wreaked over the central buffalo herds. He merely replied into his journal upon return to the fort. Where there were many herds of buffalo the year before, there were now myriads of carcasses. The air was foul with a sickening stench, and the vast plain, which only a short 12-month before teemed with animal life, was a dead, solitary, putrid desert. A Santa Fe Railway conductor, J.H. Helton, said he could have walked for a hundred miles along the right-of-way without stepping off the carcasses. So great was the slaughter that in 1872 and 1873, the railroads hauled 1,250,000 hides out of Kansas in nearby territory. Now that the central buffalo herd had grown near extinction, a new hunting ground had to be established. In search of the new buffalo herds, J. Wright Moore and John Webb saddled their horses and took a trip through the Texas Panhandle. For five days they rode through a sea of grazing buffaloes. Their report excited the other hunters, but there was some hesitation because of the Medicine Lodge Treaty of 1867. The treaty was made to reserve the rights for Kiowas, Comanches, Southern Cheyennes, and Arapahoes. Only these tribes were allowed to hunt the lands south of the Arkansas River. These were the hunting grounds heavily patrolled by the troops from Fort Dodge. The military patrols were given the strictest orders to confiscate the buffalo hunters' mule teams, wagons, and supplies if caught crossing the Cimarron. On the other hand, Texas, which owned the land now in question, had not been party to the treaty. Steele Fraser proposed that the Hyde men send a delegation to Fort Dodge to ask its commander, Lieutenant Colonel Dodge, what the penalty would be if the hunters crossed into the Texas Panhandle where they knew buffalo still abounded. According to buffalo runner J. Wright Moore, who went with Fraser to the fort, Dodge received them very cordially after canceling his other engagements. Wright Moore asked advice from the commander of the 3rd Infantry at Fort Dodge, Richard Irving Dodge, he, like most of his comrades-in-arms, believed that the Indian problem would be resolved as soon as the buffalo were gone. Boys, replied the officer, if I were hunting buffalo, I would go where the buffalo are. 
Dodge then took the hide men by the hands, bid them goodbye, and wished them success. <laughs>